Hey everybody, Saul Marquez here with the Outcomes Rocket. Are you going to health? That's H-L-T-H. It's the largest and most important conference for health innovation. H-L-T-H, pronounced health, is a one-of-a-kind ecosystem event for the health industry. And they're on a mission to bring together 5,000 plus senior leaders to solve the most pressing problems facing healthcare today and actualize the most promising opportunities to improve health. They bring together senior leaders from across, across payers, providers, employers, investors, fast-growing startups, pharma, policymakers, and innovation centers to ask one question. How do we create the future of health? I'll be there, and I hope to see you there too. If you use Outcomes Rocket Podcast 150 as the promo code, that's Outcomes Rocket Podcast 150, you'll get $150 off your ticket. Looking forward to seeing you there. Go to hlth.com to sign up. That's hlth.com to sign up. Use that promo code, Outcomes Rocket Podcast 150. And I am excited to see you there. I'll even have a booth recording some podcasts live at the event, the MGM in Las Vegas. So, so excited to see you there. If you do sign up, don't be afraid to say hi. And uh, we're going to learn a lot there. So go ahead and sign up, hlth.com. I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Brigham Hyde. He's a founding partner at Symphony AI, an AI tech company focused on a $1 billion VCPE. As healthcare partner, co-founder at Concerto Health AI, he also does lots of great work in the healthcare space. As an executive, he led operations including a 10-year partnership with ASCO CancerLink for oncology EMR data. He grew the company to 325 employees and led multiple customer relationships in pharma and payers, including two major strategic partnerships with Pfizer and BMS. Prior to Symphony AI and Concerto, Brigham was Chief Data Officer and Senior Vice President of Analytics at Decision Resources Group. He joined DRG in 2014 as part of the acquisition of Relay Technology Management, an AI drug discovery and an analytics firm he co-founded in 2009. He began his career following a PhD in clinical pharmacology from Tufts University as an analyst at Cohen and Company covering life science tools and diagnostics. Brigham holds faculty positions at the MIT Media Lab and Tufts University School of Medicine, actively publishes on AI research and RWD topics, and is a member of the IOM Special Studies session at AI and Machine Learning. So I had the privilege of, of listening to Brigham's podcast on the Breaking Health podcast. If you haven't had a chance, uh, I'll leave a link to that podcast interview. But I wanted to get him on the podcast today because of his thought leadership in AI and healthcare, in particular with, with pharmaceuticals. So Brigham, pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Hey, so Brigham, tell me, what, what is it that got you to focus on healthcare? Yeah, it's uh, an interesting journey. I actually began my educational career as a chemist and then with a PhD in clinical pharmacology focused on drug development. I think at its core, I was always really interested and curious about the mechanisms of disease and the way that we develop cures to those. And that led me down a winding path towards uh, the power of data and techniques like AI and machine learning to be used in that space. 
It's so interesting because you really could have done a lot of different things, but you really saw the power of, of data. You started your own business. It got acquired and, and it's just been a, a good ride for you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think there's been a true north throughout it, which has been just to focus on understanding why. You know, curiosity is a big component that drives me, and that's led me to try and seek more data-driven solutions and ultimately techniques like AI machine learning, you know, I think have huge power uh, today, but also uh, really exciting about where they can take things in the future. Yeah. I think, I think it's a great call. And, and so if you had to say a hot topic that needs to be on health leaders' agendas, what would you say that is? And how are you guys addressing it? Sure. I think there are, are two really important themes happening right now. And the first is really a core for Concerto Health AI, which is the leverage created by using real-world data for uh, clinical studies, regulatory studies, and things like synthetic control arms. And I'll touch on the detail at the second. The other theme, I think, which is really exciting, you know, is the integration of and the power of that data integration through AI and ML-based uh, technology into the point of care and care decisions and value-based decisions. I think our physician community is uh, heavily underserved by information, um, relying on you know academic research and pharmaceutical research in the clinical trial realm, not really being empowered by personalized data about their patients or patients like them when making decisions. I'm pretty passionate about both topics. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So with Concerto, where are you guys focused? Are you tackling both of these, both physicians, so Concerto, uh, real time? And, yeah. yeah, sure. So Concerto was founded you know, really around the principle that EMR data and the value that's locked inside of that can create big opportunities for evidence generation and sort of finding new cures and opportunities, and also using that data to develop AI and ML-based applications. One of the big tailwinds for Concerto and recently published multiple abstracts at this year's ASCO conference in June was looking at the potential of using real-world data to augment classic sort of control clinical trials. So taking the data about patients that exist out there in the world and analyzing it in a proper manner where you could actually you know, look at how, how certain treatments are performing in the real world. And the FDA has taken a really progressive stance over the last, you know, say even five years, really beginning with 21st Century Cures Act and the interpretation of it to begin to try and incorporate that view of the real world. Certo has a partnership with FDA, works closely with them to develop standards around that. What's the right way to use EMR data alongside or in combination with classic sort of clinical trial data in order to give a different view. You know, one of the problems that exists with our current clinical trial system is that take oncology, there's just so few patients available to enter these studies. It's a difficult decision both for the patient and the physician to put them on what might be an experimental therapy. And a lot of those studies end up smaller than we might like. We also worry that they sort of restrict uh, patients to ones who meet strict inclusion, exclusion criteria, instead of understanding you know, what's gonna happen when this really hits the real world. And I know that the FDA is, is very focused on uh, getting a better view of what's gonna happen when they approve a drug and release it to the community. The sort of anecdote <laughs> that gets thrown around is that you know, many clinical trials are performed on very healthy patients 
at the best institutions with the best doctors, right? Mm -hmm. But when a drug gets approved and it goes out to market, you know, there's great diversity in the patient populations that will be taking those therapies, the health conditions that they may have, comorbidities, and also just the systems of care that will deliver it. And by using real-world data, EMR-based data, uh, you're able to get a view of how those patients actually look in the community. And I think that's one of the real focuses for Concerto, for its partner, ASCO, and ultimately for its clients uh, across the healthcare community. Love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great focus with uh, the growing, uh, I mean, incidence of cancer. And yeah, all this data locked in the EMR. One of the things that I heard you mention in the previous uh, episode you did was about some data missing, right? Like, for example, the stage of cancer that that's in. And so you guys were able to develop an algorithm to more or less accurately guess, right? And to make it useful. Yeah, it's it's a big challenge. And there's a variety of reasons why this has become the case. But they say if, if you've seen one EMR, you've seen one EMR. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They look different between different vendors, information stored in different ways. The content and quality of that data varies. And then you'll even see variation of the same EMR system between two different installations, you know, that might be down the street from each other. So pulling that all together in a way that is useful and consistent and that can be used to inform clinical decisions and create that type of evidence is really critical. I think what's emerging is that there are going to be multiple sort of levels or tiers of data that have different use, right? We yep. talk a lot about structured versus unstructured EMR content. Structured EMR, you kind of think about it like the fields that are always filled out or usually filled out in a consistent manner. Sort of think of it like the, the structured drop-down tables that somebody might pick. The unstructured content is stuff like imaging files, notes, scans, faxes, PDFs. I mean, we've sort of seen it all that doctors attach or append to a record. And a lot of the, at least in oncology, but also I think true in other places, a lot of the real value is in that. And so you have to have a way to fill in missingness, extract value from unstructured content. And I think the current standard that's emerging is there's this concept called uh, regulatory grade data. Okay. Essentially, it's data that comes from both structured and unstructured, where there's a standardized methodology by which that information is extracted. And, you know, at this point for uh, regulatory studies or sort of critical clinical studies, that actually requires human intervention. Things like EMR curation, where you actually have a nurse read over the material and identify the critical clinical elements, things like progression of disease and other aspects which are inform sort of key clinical characteristics. And I frankly think that's, that's probably a good idea, right? You know, if you're comparing the use of real-world data to clinical trials, it's really critical that if you're looking at one data set that's real-world-based, another that's control trial-based, that you can crosswalk or translate between those data sets. And that's why regulatory-grade data and the methodologies around it are so critical. That said, there's other tiers that also have value. And one of the things that Concerto has done has focused on developing AI and NLP-based technology that can look at patterns in data, recognize unstructured content, and create that consistent structured form. And that uh, enables much more scale. We mm -hmm. can do a lot more patients that way. And I think then the use of that data may be different than that regulatory grade, but still really valuable. 
uh, for a variety of reasons, in particular in the area of value-based care. You know, I think that's a, a critical element also patient segmentation and ultimately trying to standardize that information. I'm of the mind, you know, interoperability gets talked about a lot in the EMR community. I feel like we've been talking about it for 15 years and I'm sort of <laughs> biased around the idea that I'm not sure that it's going to be solved even with innovations like HL7 Fire and different standards that are developing. So I sort of assume, you know, there's always going to have to be this layer that, you know, is uh, using techniques like AI, machine learning, or NLP to sort of extract and standardize additional value. And that's yeah. a, a big area for Concerto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a good call. It's a heavy lift to try to, to achieve that interoperability and having solutions like yours makes a lot of sense. The thing that keeps coming to my mind is what about a country like England, for example? You know, they've got the, the NIH. Are they a little bit more standardized and would it be easier to work with them? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think you mean the NHS, but yeah. Uh, the NHS, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, lots of acronyms out there. Um, <laughs> there are. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think when you have a government or federally centric health system that, you know, enables the rollout of common technology, it certainly helps. But in my experience, that hasn't led to the level of detail. Put it this way, there's still unstructured content in those okay. records yeah. and still inconsistency in how that's recorded. I think there's the potential to do more, but, you know, this, let's, let's remember, I mean, the reason that, you know, these unstructured documents or content get created is because it's, it's difficult to have a one size fits all EMR. Each practice is a little bit different. The communication patterns are a little bit different. So even in the, the government-based systems, this is still a challenge. Although I think there's good initiatives underway at the NHS and other countries to begin to standardize that a bit more. Gotcha. So it, there really is no no easy button to this. I mean, and that's why the work that you've done in your your previous companies and what you're doing now is so valuable. Yeah, I, I wish there was. I, you know, I have colleagues. We sort of sit around and think about how would we do it all over again if we could yeah. digitize health records. I think a fundamental concept that you know has been left out of the discussion is that the EMR companies largely serve the providers, right? They're selling right. software to providers and provider systems. They're the customer. And the things they create are driven by the processes and interests of that group. That group largely is not responsible for analyzing the data or utilizing it analytically downstream. So we created systems that were customer-oriented to people who had diverse views and diverse needs. And left out of that conversation was the analytical community. So if I, if I had a wish, it would just be that those of us that end up having to analyze this data had a voice at that table. And that's, that's gotten better, and there's several forums for that. But at the end of the day, if you're an EMR company, you're going to change your product based on the customers that pay you, not the ones that are utilizing data for other purposes. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. And yeah, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of like you guys are, are the bolt-on to systems that are already doing something for the provider. You guys are bolting on technologies to help. So who's paying for your stuff? Who are the companies interested in this? Sure. At Concerto, work with many sort of constituencies in the healthcare system, although I'd say pharma is sort of the primary partner for Concerto. Yeah. And the real driver for that is that, you know, the potential of using EMR-based data and regulatory-grade data to offset both the risk and the cost of clinical development for them is a big factor. If you're running a clinical trial phase three, 
and you have a control arm you're trying to recruit, say, 500 patients to, uh, where control arm being they would just receive standard of care and you would use it to compare to your, your active therapy arm. You know, that could take 18 months just to get it recruited, stood up, and enrolled. And the costs on something like that are, you know, in the 20 30 $50 million range. You know, when you compare that to taking EMR data on patients that are in market and, you know, running a similar control arm in that real world data, the factor of change on cost is, is significant. You can do it for a lot less money, uh, which means you can do larger studies, means you can do more studies, and also the time. That 18-month window I gave you, that type of study could be done in three to six months using real-world data. And that potential really changes the equation for the cost side in pharma and, and also gives them strategic advantage. So there's been a big push around that. Oncology may be leading the way, but there are other areas where that's true. And so that's a huge factor in, in trying to consider this. Also point out, in addition to it helping pharma, we're also talking about speeding drugs to market that can help patients. And one of the big things that I find sort of bipartisan about this issue and with the politics of it is that the diversity that's available in EMR data, whether we're talking about racial or socioeconomic or access to care, the people in clinical trials tend to be more affluent, more white, and healthier in general. So getting a viewpoint on folks who don't typically get access to clinical trials and what they actually look like out there, you know, their comorbids and other diseases or, you know, how their interaction with the health system actually works, that's really valuable. And I think it gives a voice to certain communities that have been underprivileged in clinical studies. Also true of women, right, which typically are under-enrolled in, in clinical studies. So I, I really think, and pharma likes all of this, right? I mean, they want yeah. their therapies to succeed when they go to market. They want to have a clear view of, you know, the personalized aspect, which patient their drug is going to work for. And this gives everybody, pharma, regulatory, insurers, even providers, a much better view of that. So I think it's a really... There's a lot of value created, uh, not just for our, for pharma clients, but for the whole system. By this. Yeah, that's outstanding. I mean, because that, that is one of the knocks, you know, the demographic is, is narrow. It doesn't cover the community of, of potential users of the drug. That's pretty neat that you guys are able to, to offer that. Yeah, it's, it's really measurable. And ASCO, which is Concerto's primary partner, has done a number of studies on this and sort of shown the, the potential. You know, and I think... The net effect is that you get a viewpoint around how this, you know, new therapy is actually going to do when it gets out there, you know, mm -hmm. and what are things to watch out for? What are, you know, maybe specific uh, risk factors that say somebody shouldn't be on a drug or maybe on the flip side, a population that's really underserved by existing therapy where, you know, a new therapeutic would really benefit them. So as we, as we talk about things like value-based care and personalized medicine, to me at the core of that you know, is evidence generation driven by rural data. Oh, that's a great call out. So give us an example, Brigham, of, of a time when things didn't work out. What'd you learn from it? How did it make you guys better? <laughs> in my career in general or in uh, <laughs> our, our, at Concerto? Yeah, at Concerto. Sure. I mean, I think one thing that happens in healthcare, you know, as you're building companies, is you're trying to drive innovation as much as you can, but there mm -hmm. are, are many systems in place that I don't think it's not like a intentional thing, but sort of limit that potential, you know, and as we develop things in AI and machine learning, you know, we have to keep an eye on sort of two perspectives. You know, one is this desire to be heavily future oriented, right? Where, 
there's a, an AI algorithm, you know, collaborating with your doctor to inform what they should give you. And, you know, an app on your phone that, you know, could assess risk and benefit a different thing. And you want to develop those things. But there, there's also the realities and, you know, frankly, in some cases, you know, justifiable concerns about safety and, and security and wanting to do things sort of practically. And so, you know, while we'll publish and we publish a lot on exciting areas of AI application, the ways to actually get those, you know, to the point of care are sometimes a lot more practical, you know, a lot mm-hmm. more sort of back office oriented, you know, where can we find a, a recommendation, the simple action somebody could take, you know, instead of doing something like changing treatment or predicting an outcome, is there a recommendation or alert that can be sent for it? Yeah. or a, a flag to somebody that, hey, maybe they should enroll in a clinical trial or something like that. So balancing innovation and the future with the practicalities of the, the current healthcare system and trying to find places where you can still deliver value, that's a constant sort of battle, regardless of where you're focused in healthcare. And so I think, you know, Concerto, we've had success doing that and continue to evolve it with great partners and trying to be patient about the, the potential of the future while being practical about, you know, some of the current business models that work. Yeah. And that's a tough balance, right? I mean, well, do you have like a, something that's like, okay, this is the thing that would qualify this as, as meaningful innovation versus just innovation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think all innovation is meaningful to some extent. I think about it in terms of, you know, what our customers and partners view as valuable. If you're talking about a pharma company, if they're able to speed drug development, reduce costs, get more cures to market, if they're able to optimize processes around clinical development and clinical trials and recruitment of those things, I think those are all really positive, measurable outcomes. Does that sound as exciting and, you know, sci-fi as... Having, you know, uh, an AI that predicts your every health outcome. No, but, but it is, right? It's, very, it's doing that just in a, in a practical orientation. You know, and I think learning to work with the systems in healthcare and, you know, how to show value through them is a really important factor when you're developing a business. Yeah. No, great call out, Brigham. Glad you mentioned that. So what would you say the other side of that coin is? What's one of your proudest experiences you've had to date? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the <laughs> AI and machine learning can be very buzzwordy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know where we are in the hype cycle at the moment. Obviously, IBM Watson drove a lot of the interest in this with their sort of push in marketing. You know, there's been some backlash against them. Some of it very justified, you know, some of it a little bit hype oriented. And I think one of the things that we were particularly proud about at Concerto is that we were really practical about AI, we really focused on things like validation and transparency and the ways to you know, really, really do it right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a system we created there around how we develop, build, launch, deploy, retrain, and, and sort of operationalize AI, I think is really exciting. A lot of the research you've published over the last 12 months, and by the way, you know, the young company, you're focused on getting the revenue and you know, sort of making the business work. Taking time to do research is, is a nice to have at times, but I, I think we're yeah. really proud of a lot of the stuff we've published there and you know the potential of it. And I think just continue to set that bar, you know, work with the parties that are out there, whether it's ASCO or the FDA and and others and work towards the right path to bring that to patients. I mean, the whole reason we're all doing this on some level, if you work in healthcare period, but certainly in Certo, is that we're trying to help cure cancer patients, pretty lofty yeah. goal. And like, you gotta be careful to be arrogant about that. Right. So we were always very focused on being practical. What have we actually proven? 
How can we prove that we're right? You know, how can we show this has value? One example of something we published in the past is prediction model that you know focuses on outcomes in advanced non-small cell lung cancer patients. You know, huh. and we're getting really strong predictive values for that. We'll get you can read about the quantitation of that in our ASCO abstracts, but um, you're really looking at it. Yeah, for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Interesting. And, you know, really being able to say, like, what is the risk of this patient having a fatal event in what time period? Yeah. And, you know, helping to focus efforts on patients that have risk or could be intervened differently. Also opening up some of the components of that model. And if we're making a prediction, it's like, well, why? What is making that prediction? Can we use that to inform guidelines and the treatment community and ultimately clinical decision. So, you know, there's, there's a bunch we have like that. We get really specific. We think very carefully about the use case and we focus heavily on validation and the best ways to sort of do it right when applying AI and developing those types of things. Yeah, very practical. Absolutely. So, yeah, so, so if you had to say there's one project or focus that you guys are working on today that you're most excited about, what would you say that is? Well, Concerto announced uh, partnerships with both Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer uh, earlier this spring, also with Estellas. There's a pre-existing partnership with AstraZeneca. But across those partnerships and other customer relationships, these are multi-year strategic deals, which is really a complement to the vision of those companies to say, you know, look, we have some needs for real-world data today and technology platforms that enable the use of EMR, but you know, let's have a little bit more of a vision, take out the crystal ball. Where mm-hmm. is this going to go? And by partnering with us in that way, they really focused on where those, what was the future going to be? And I think that type of vision and sort of side-by-side partnership you know, allows us to work towards things together and align to their vision. So I'm excited to see where Concerto takes those partnerships and how that emerges or evolves and, and emerges new models for pharmaceutical companies. You know, I think increasingly pharmaceutical companies are starting to think about themselves as digital companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, and some are further along than others, but I sort of say it, you know, who better in terms of knowledge of patients and knowledge of disease, the data they have in their own clinical trial repositories, you know, who better to bring that type of digital evidence to the care community, not only for their own therapies, but for broader personalized medicine. So I'm excited to see where those go. And, you know, I think there'll be many exciting things to come through those partnerships. Yeah, bring them in. That's kudos to you and your team. I mean, the belief in what you guys are doing and the difference that it can make to, you know, speed to market or cost of drug development is really symbolic there with, with these guys jumping in for a long-term partnership. So big kudos to you guys, man. That's that's a big win. Well, I think it's, a, like I said, it's a compliment the vision of those, those companies and the leaders within it. They know they need to speed R&D and reduce costs so they can offset some of the pricing pressures that are coming. And also really just, you know, start to deliver medicines that are, you know, developed for patient of one. I don't Mm -hmm. think we'll get to that overnight, but they want to do that. They're just trying to find a way to do it economically and in a way that's responsible. And so I think these partnerships and others that are out there, I think, represent big steps in that direction. Yeah, totally agree with that. So getting close to the end here, what we have next is a lightning round, followed by a book you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Yeah, sure. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Generate more evidence from real-world data and EMR. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? I think not 
standardizing and processing data in a way that's consistent or transparent is a big mistake. It creates doubt about the use of that data. So I think those out there using it really need to pay attention to the methodologies and the leadership of the FDA on how to use that data. Yeah, and I, I love the, the the point on transparency, right? If you know how it's being processed and used, it, it really does increase the trust in it. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? I think it's about a balance of customer centricity. So ask your clients, ask your partners, where do they want to be next? Have that as an ongoing conversation, one that you develop together. And I think the balance of that with an eye on where should we be? What should be the goals we have? And sort of balancing those two narratives, bringing all the partners to the table is a really critical step. Yeah, I love that. And uh, what's an area of focus that drives everything at Concerto? I think it's ultimately improving outcomes in oncology patients. You know, you get up every day and think about that question. I think you're, <laughs> you're doing the right thing. Love it. And uh, these next two are more on a personal note for the listeners to get to know you. What's your number one health habit? <laughs> I, I like to um, road bike. And oh, I've gotten nice. really into some of the apps around that. Also incorporated, <laughs> being Northeast, incorporating Peloton into my life. I'm, I'm sort of uh, really excited about the amplification of exercise and some of the behavioral models that exist out there. That's cool. And I think their impact they can have. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was in France a couple months ago and um, I was like, ah, man, I got to hit the gym. And I, and I went there and this gym was like futuristic, man. Like they had like a Peloton and they had like virtualized yoga room. And so like all the instructors were remote and virtual. All the yeah, no, I, there's a great app called Aptive. I also like if people haven't checked that out, it's, you know, what's it called? Uh, Aptive? A-P-T-I-V-E? Aptive. Huh. It's two A's, but they basically oh, okay. they are taking the Peloton model of generating content that you listen to through earbuds. So there's a, you know, if you want to go for a two mile run, they've got a coach talking to you and, and setting training exercise for you. They've also got ones for the gym. So that's a pretty cool one. Wow. Okay, cool. I'll have to check that one out. Active. You guys too. <laughs> so if you're looking to get more active, that's a new idea. And uh, the last question here in the lightning round is, what is your number one success habit? I think more than anything, it's to chase curiosity. When you get the, you know, that twinge of an idea and you're like, I wonder what that is. Yeah. You know, really chasing that down and using that to drive your activity, you know, I think is a, is a critical feature. And ultimately that Getting in the weeds and chasing down that curiosity leads to lots of exciting things, whether it's on an innovative front or just driving you to get deep on topics and understand them. Love that. Yeah, and I can imagine with your background, Brigham, this pharma focus, you could get pretty deep into the weeds on both the tech and the curative uh, science. Yeah, I mean, in reality, (laughs) I wish I was still a bench scientist. I did a lot of bench research, uh, worked on uh, the mitochondrial genome and mitochondrial dynamics in grad school, loved bench science. I really missed a lot of the basic biology, but I felt it was, uh, it was too slow to get <laughs> you know, drugs yeah. from the bench to market and understanding that process led me into the data world. Yeah, uh, super interesting, super interesting. What book would you recommend to the listeners? Yeah, so I've got two. One is just one of my favorite books to read as you're thinking about innovating and developing new companies in particular. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Did a lot to shape my approach to things and sort of self-awareness of how you approach day-to-day life, but also business. And so I think that's a required reading as far as I'm concerned. 
And that's something I'm reading right now, which is at the, you know, the cutting edge of the where AI is going discussion is called the master algorithm by Pedro Domingos. And I, I won't try and summarize the complicated book, but what's interesting to me is that as we've innovated in the AI and ML reign, there starts to become a question of do we need multiple algorithms or will there be some sort of master algorithm that ends up sort of incorporating a lot of the features of, of health and life into it and ultimately drives things. So there's a bit of a debate in the community. Do we need multiple algorithms or we end up with, you know, one sort of master algorithm that's deep learning driven and able to evolve on its own. So good discussion of that in Pedro's book. Man, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I'm not sure what I think of it yet. <laughs> but, uh, there's some future sight in it, but I like thinking about that edge of it and then trying to translate that back to technology and you know what we do in our business. Oh, very interesting. Folks, uh, for a full transcript of our discussion with Mr. Brigham Hyde, including the short notes and links to the things we've discussed, go to outcomesrocket.health. In the search bar, type in Brigham and you'll find our interview with him there. Before we conclude, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought, Brigham, and then the best place where the listeners could continue the conversation with you and the company. Great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if I were to leave a point, and I know your audience includes you know, both uh, medical professionals and those in the industry, getting savvy about the data that's out there and how it's used and you know, even pushing yourself to you know, take a Code Academy course and understand some of the approaches that are taken, I think it's uh, becoming a requirement that you know, people have that knowledge. So I encourage people to, to do that, and dig in and, uh, and help figure that out. Love that. And then for the listeners to continue the conversation, where should they uh, visit or follow you? Sure. Uh, Concerto can be uh, followed at concertohealthai.com and associated Twitter handles. And best way to follow me is on LinkedIn through Brigham Hyde. I publish often there and also through Forbes, but uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Outstanding, Brigham. Hey, really appreciate your, your thoughts on AI. Making it practical is the way to go. And uh, looking forward to seeing where, the, where you uh, and the company uh, take oncology. So really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.